0: Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. All week long, I've been featuring and celebrating Black artists and thinkers, and as much as possible, getting out of the way to let them share their work and their stories. Today, I'm delighted to share with you a conversation I had with someone who has really inspired me this week. And this time when my family has lost our source of income and we're trying to support ourselves with this podcast, it was so encouraging to talk to someone who has made that leap bravely and successfully. And also, his voice is wonderful to listen to. I'll let him take it from here.
1: My name is James Jones. I am. 32 years old. I am a creative entrepreneur living in Boston, Massachusetts. That's just a fancy way of telling people I do a lot of things. (laughs) I got three different jobs. They pay bills and they're all in the arts world. I haven't had a nine to five job at all in about seven years. I basically have been making a living doing various hustles in art and done things like perform in Carnegie Hall. And I've also done things like been a background dancer for Flavor Flav. Like, that's the breadth of my stuff. But right now, my primary hustles are I'm a voiceover artist, I am an acapella singer and producer, and I'm a podcast producer. All of these businesses that I have are a reflection of me in some form or another. Being a Black Latter-day Saint isn't the most interesting thing about me, but it informs A lot of what I do like with my music business my particular music group I branded it as a modern-day new Edition with a touch of public enemy which is very unapologetically black so like that aspect of me is in my music Uh, obviously being a black Latter-day Saint is a big part of this uh, podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism and with my voiceover business even though it's kind of tongue-in-cheek my voiceover brand identity is black Jesus I'm light-skinned but I'm still black and I got shoulder length blocks and I have this full beard that I've failed to groom during this whole pandemic, so the whole idea came to me. I was on a Zoom call with my uh, sisters and my cousins, and uh, one of my cousins who's just full of jokes all the time, he was like, yo, who let Black Jesus in the chat? And I was like, ha ha, and that's just when it came to me. I was like, this is gonna be my voiceover brand identity. I'm going to be Black Jesus. It's a, it's a little sacrilegious, but nobody knows that except for the two of us right now. Both of my parents are from South Carolina, so my core sensibilities are pretty Southern, but. They they were also military. So I grew up in a lot of different places. They actually came from the Southern Baptist tradition. Both of my parents did. My mom converted while she was still in the military. This was shortly before I was born. And me and my four sisters were basically raised in the faith. That doesn't mean I grew up ignorant of my uh, Black church roots or where my parents came from, I still even go to Black church every now and again when I feel like I need to be filled because going to church with people who you know support political policies that hurt people that look like you, that can wear on you after a while. So every now and again, especially this past Sunday, I might pop into a Black church's Zoom meeting just so I can make sure I get that piece that I need. I've been all over this country. I've been on the West Coast, I've been in the South, I've been on the East Coast. I've lived in a lot of different cities, a lot of different states. I've seen a lot of different kinds of people. My dad retired from the military when I was in eighth grade and that's when the moving stopped. I was living in North Carolina at that time. And then we moved to Pennsylvania for high school, a suburb of Scranton, Pennsylvania. For fans of The Office, yes, that's Scranton, is where I grew up or where I finished growing up, I suppose. I went to Brigham Young University I had always loved music, you know, I grew up in the church singing, I joined choir in high school, I became an acapella nerd in college, I don't know what it is about college campuses in acapella, but I really came to love acapella while I was there, and I was like, you know what, that's what I want to do when I grow up, it was always in the back of my mind, but at the same time, I was like, my parents would never have that, if I told my parents I wanted to be another black musician out here, they would not have it, both my parents grew up in the Jim Crow era South, So they wanted the best for their kids. They're two great examples of making something of themselves from next to nothing. My dad grew up in the worst city in South Carolina, and he ended up becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon. They all wanted us to become some kind of academic, like doctor, lawyer, engineer, professor. Something like that was basically the option. And I was going to be an academic. I served a two-year mission in South Africa, I came back to the States, I finished my education at BYU, got my uh, bachelor's in psychology, and my future seemed pretty set. I was going to be an academic. In fact, that was kind of the idea for me and all of my sisters. However, things obviously didn't work out like that. I got my bachelor's, but my intended plan to get my master's in educational leadership and policy unfortunately didn't work out. I wanted some teaching experience as well in the time that I was going to wait until I could reapply to grad school. But Teach for America, even they said no to me. And that was humiliating. Like they said, they didn't just say no to me, they said no to me twice. And that was just a humiliating and very frustrating point for me in life. So, like, I'm a year and a half as a college graduate, I'm working as a bartender in Utah. Nothing about my situation makes any kind of sense. So, in a moment of spite and frustration, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try to make music my living. I didn't tell anybody what I was working on. And sure enough, as soon as I quit one of my jobs and made the decision to pursue music, I had a job offer in six months. I got a job singing in an a cappella group that was based in Boston, where I am currently. But as soon as I got the job, I rang both of my parents and I was like, guys, I got a job as a full-time a cappella singer. I'm going to be touring all across the country, maybe even in the world, and I'm going to get paid to do it. How you like that? And my parents were both very supportive. They were like, as long as you can pay your bills, we're happy for you. And that was a huge load off for me. So I was able to pursue that for a few years. I sang for I sang professionally for about five years before I decided I wanted a project of my own, which is where that music group that I built came up. I wanted something that was a better expression of me, something that was mine, something that I could do. I have been somebody who has always tied my sense of self-worth to accomplishment and achievement. And I know that's not healthy. Like, I know it's not healthy, but I don't quite believe that, if that makes any sense. I fell into a pretty deep depression after my last full-time singing gig that I had was part of this big production company that also handled the touring productions of Rent, Mamma Mia, and Cinderella, and they were the ones who hosted my particular group, which was the only original act they had, and once they cut us off, I was unemployed for the first time in my adult life, and I was no longer doing my dream job for a full-time job, and that was a really difficult thing for me to accept. I kind of had a bit of a crisis about my sense of self worth because I didn't just lose my job I also lost my wife I was married at the time and in that same year I lost both my dream job and and my wife so my sense of self was pretty much gone and I feel kind of bad saying that because your sense of self should not reside in people or a job or a career or things or accomplishments But that's how I spent so much of my life understanding a sense of worth. You know, when you're growing up Mormon, like a big deal is getting married and stuff like that. So I had that idea going through my head and I was never the coolest kid growing up. I was always a bit of a weirdo. I wasn't the most uh, socially apt person, for lack of a better word but I always had respect of my peers when I performed well academically or when I performed well in my different extracurriculars. So I relied heavily on my academic performance and my performance in the arts for the respect of my peers and for the company of my peers. So like becoming an adult and then not having a career, not having a lot of friends, not having a wife anymore like that did a number on my psyche. In hindsight, my marriage probably, well, it never should have happened You know, I don't have any regrets about it. I'm glad that I met her and, you know, we're still cool to this day. But there was some irreparable damage done early on in our marriage that we just could not undo. And it kind of came to a head at around the same time that I lost my job. So the context for that is, ideally, when you get married in the Mormon faith, you marry somebody else that is of your faith. But she never had the opportunity to have a real identity crisis. And that started coming out as soon as we moved to Boston. And she finally, for the first time, was able to experience that identity crisis and figure out who she really was. But in the middle of our marriage, she decided that wasn't for her anymore, and that was something that I respected. But all these other parts of her identity were called into question. Like, my identity as a person of faith is a big part of my identity. And if there's anything I would want in a partner, it's somebody that I don't have to explain the most crucial parts of my identity to. And those are definitely my blackness and my faith. It wouldn't have mattered to me if I married somebody of a different race or of a different faith and she was both of those things. But the second she couldn't appreciate that critical part of my identity is just kind of when things started falling apart. And also that kind of left a big question mark over our marriage. And we ultimately made the decision uh, to not be together anymore. And I was going through a similar crisis with my job. I didn't want to work for somebody forever, even though I was ultimately let go from that particular job. I was working for somebody else and our relevance, our influence was only going to grow to a certain point so long as I wasn't the person in control. So I was in a way, I was in a stagnant career and I was in a stagnant marriage. Both of those things had an identity crisis because they couldn't quite figure out what they were. And ultimately both had to be terminated because of that. That really forced me to come up with some new definitions of success I will say that I'm a healthier person now in terms of how I define success I really do look at it as more of a pursuit of a worthy ideal like so long as I'm in the pursuit of that I can be a happy person but I'm not all the way there yet I still have some unhealthy attachments to accomplishment and to having somebody in my life though that has significantly reduced but my definitions have changed of success. I just need to work on getting the rest of my, my unconscious mind there to believe it with me.
0: It was out of those struggles that James found his way to the work that is supporting him now. He found a mentor and got some training in voiceover work. He got a gig reading an audiobook. He learned to improve his craft. And he created DeFi, the a cappella group that he sings with now. On DeFi's website, they describe themselves this way. DeFi began as an idea to simply push the boundaries of how a cappella music is produced. The group wanted to produce a more mainstream sound while still using the human voice as the driving force. With the help of technology, DeFi is able to add effects to, sample, and loop the sounds of their voices, to create something an ordinary a cappella group is incapable of. DeFi also advances its presentation by utilizing street dance in its show. Finally, DeFi wanted to send a message. As the primary artistic elements of DeFi—beatboxing, dance, DJing, and rapping— are all elements of hip-hop, DeFi seeks to embody its message on and off the stage— as a former a cappella singer myself, I was really excited to hear DeFi's songs. And I wasn't disappointed. I asked James if he would share a couple of DeFi's songs with us now.
1: These particular songs are uh, from a series that my group did called Hashtag Be We wanted to create a series of protest anthems by black artists. They're iconic songs, but they speak to something that is much deeper. They speak to the sadness, the anger, and the frustration that black people feel in the midst of instances like this. But they also speak to a resilience, to a hope, and to a fight that is also within us. One that we hope ultimately triumphs and helps us to come together as one people and helps us to have our humanity recognized so um, th- these are going to be songs that some of your listeners are probably going to recognize, but realize that there are subversive and perhaps not so subversive meanings that exist in the music. The first one is What's Going On, a song by Marvin Gaye. The song was written in the 60s, but obviously you listen to these lyrics and you see the video we created, you see that it's just as relevant as it was 40 years ago, which is very telling. Oh.
2: me with brutality talk to me so we can see what's going on see what's going oh, what's on see what's going on I gotta know what's
1: oh, going, what's going on. on see what's going on I look at what's going on outside right now and you know obviously it's bad it is every time this kind of thing happens but what really gets me is how much confidence i have that this is going to happen again we're going to kill more unarmed black men in the future. There will be protests. There will be riots. There will be people who've never said anything about systemic destruction of black life, who will suddenly speak up when property damage comes into play. There will be people who talk past each other as they debate the value of black life. We'll get distracted by whatever's happening in the news. And then we'll repeat the process. I'm not all that old, you know, I'm only 32 years old, but I look at our history as a nation and in considering how little has changed and how little we still value black life, I don't really have faith in America to correct this problem. And that's probably the scariest thing for me to realize about myself is just how much hope I have lost. I'm at a point in my life where I feel like separatism is a more viable option than whatever we've been trying for the last 400 years. And that scares me. Like it really scares me. Like I'd much rather separatism than what could be a potentially violent civil war happen in this country. But like (sighs) that, that is what I'm thinking of that. That is where my head is like legitimately where my head is frightens me so much. And I wish we could just get it together. It's always bad every time it happens, but this time I've caught myself just so devoid of hope to a point that it frightens me. I'm tired. I am really tired. Tired of having the same conversations, of expressing the same outrage. Tired of debating my own humanity. Like, I'm tired of all of it, you know what I'm saying? Just, this is, like, I'm beyond tired, and I feel kind of helpless because at at, at most I can just lend a voice and lend a body to people who want their own humanity affirmed. That is something that I can do and it's better than nothing. But at the same time, I don't like repeating myself. I don't like having these conversations over and over again. I, I don't like going on social media and seeing people that still are choosing not to get it. You can only tell a person so many times to respect your space or to respect your grief before you just kind of want to blow up at them. And this is probably one of the most sobering realizations that I come to is when people ask these questions or when they challenge you with all lives matter or when they ask questions about why people are rioting or they want to interrupt your grief and your mourning so that they can be catered to so that their questions can be answered so that You know, whatever else, I'm just like, you know what? You really need to respect my anger and my grief right now. I want to mourn. You don't go into somebody's funeral and then start asking them questions or start supposing that if they had just obeyed or if they were just more compliant, they might still be alive. That is not the time to do those things. Like, people are still not getting this. And that just kind of scares me as far as what it's going to take for America to really understand it so one of the one of the hopes that i have for this world is that people just cultivate a little more a lot more self-awareness because if that can happen I, I think we can start treating ourselves treating each other treating our planet a lot better but until then the refrain is going to be the same black people are going to stay tired i'm still going to be tired it's very frustrating i had the opportunity to participate in a uh, a vigilant protest yesterday here in boston and I just saw that youthful energy and how upset they were. But I also remembered in my early 20s, I was still mad. I saw people in their 40s and 50s. I saw people my parents' age who lived in the middle of all this, who came of age at the height of the civil rights movement. They're still mad. With this being the thing that's at the front of my mind, there, there is. I, I don't have a lot of hope. And this is because I haven't figured out A very viable solution to what's happening right now I do hope that we can get it together I do hope that people can listen and people can become more self aware I have that hope but I'm also not holding my breath that's kind of where I'm sitting right now for myself personally I just hope I can make the most of these gifts these talents and these privileges that I have You know even though i am black i'm also straight male cisgendered able-bodied educated i'm not in poverty and i'm relatively large i can use all these gifts to make other people's lives better the only thing that is giving me any peace right now is knowing that i'm doing what i can to fill the measure of my creation and there's hope to be found in that there's peace to be found in that and that's all any of us can do at the end of the day is simply utilize and develop our talents and our gifts and our privileges To the best of our ability to make the world around us a better place michelle alexander identifies four different quadrants in terms of the fight for civil rights she talks about helpers she talks about advocates she talks about rebels and she talks about organizers so there's four different ways people can participate in this particular struggle i am not an organizer at all however Through my podcast, I have operated as an advocate and I've also operated as a rebel. I am somebody who is more than happy to go to these front lines, to go to these protests and be on the front and be a body that can be the face of whatever resistance is happening. That is the present role I've chosen to take is primarily that of a rebel, but also about a quarter as an advocate by speaking to issues that affect not just me, but people in other marginalized groups. And uh, in the church right now, those biggest groups are black folks, LGBTQs and uh, women. So I use my voice as a person of privilege, but also as a marginalized person to advocate for those different identities. I love my church, I love my faith, but I, It needs to do better by way of people on the margins, and I wanted to create a resource for them, which is where my podcast Beyond the Block came out of. I've been doing my podcast that centers marginalized people in Mormonism for quite a while. It's me and my co-host, who's a gay Latter-day Saint, and we just talk about centering marginalized people in a faith that is historically and notoriously heterosexual and white. So we finally put the appeal to our listeners just a little while ago in the form of a monthly crowdfunding campaign. And the support has been overwhelming. We have been able to pay our startup costs and also pay our monthly costs. And that number is growing every day. Thankfully, I have been lucky to find purpose in these different little businesses that I've started. All of these are an expression of who I am. They're an expression of my deepest desires, my deepest ambitions, my deepest hopes. Like even that music group, it's subversive, but it is all about the recognition of black humanity and showing that piece to the world in a way that's digestible. My podcast is all about doing that, albeit on a more niche scale. It does that for people in the Mormon church. It does that for people outside of it. Like those things give me a sense of purpose. They help me find meaning. They make me feel like I'm doing something. I would go insane if I didn't have anything that gave me purpose. You know, those things that I'm fortunate enough to call my jobs right now, those give me purpose, or they all give me an income and they all give me a way to get back to this world.
0: These days, DeFi isn't making much money. Most of their income came from touring, which of course they can't do right now. Earlier this year, James had what he describes as a strong spiritual sense, that he should diversify his work. Now that move feels providential. Still, DeFi is an important part of him. I asked James if he could share one more of DeFi's songs.
1: This one is called Freedom by Beyonce. For those of you who are familiar with that song from uh, one of her more recent albums, It is anthemic, and it's spoken and written mostly for black women, but uh, obviously there are some other subversive meanings that we were able to throw in there, and we even included the Negro spiritual in there that we felt spoke very well to uh, the particular issues that are going on right now and the issues that uh, Beyoncé regularly speaks to.
0: Shelter in Place is grateful to be sponsored by Delta Wines, the refined daily drinker with a social good built in. These California wines are fresh and approachable, perfect for casual dinners at home, which is why we keep several in our fridge at all times. Plus, for every $15 bottle you buy, Delta donates $1 to fighting climate change. Buy online at winesforchange.com. And use the code SHELTER to get 10% off.
1: I will say that a lot of my non black friends have reached out to me to express solidarity or to ask what it is that they can do. I would counsel people to not go to your nearest black friend and ask them what you can do because I had to figure all this stuff out on my own. You know what I'm saying? We're all tired right now. We're really tired right now. And, you know, we, we don't need to be answering those questions. I have found it very touching and very hope inspiring for people to at the very least reach out and to express solidarity with me. It makes me, it makes me feel seen and not a lot of us feel seen right now. So if someone can offer that to me, or if you can offer that to somebody else, that is something very positive. What black people have been saying has been happening to them for literal decades. Has at last been brought to light? I really wish that people respected our humanity. And I wish that they just listened. I wish they knew how tired we were. I wish they knew how frustrated we are, how frustrating it is to have these conversations over and over again. I I wish they knew their role in fixing what's happening right now. Martin Luther King Jr. Once said something along the lines of black people hold one key to unlocking the issues on racial America. But white people hold the other key. So what they got to do is their part in this, which is listening to us, uh, following our lead and making things happen in whatever spaces they occupy. Disrupt the solidarity in your white spheres. If somebody does or says something racist, speak up. Just understand that you have a critical part to play in this as well. There's no such thing, in my opinion, as a non racist person in America. It's in the air we breathe. You know what I'm saying? So, people, you're going to mess up. And I can give people grace to mess up so long as they have the self awareness to be able to, you know, improve upon that. And we don't need people to be sorry or we don't need people to apologize. I'd rather people be better than be sorry because being sorry just likely means you're not going to try again. But if you can commit to being better, that is far better than. Any apology that we could get, the best apology, in my opinion, is change behavior. And if Americans are willing to embrace that, I think we're already in a better position to build the America that we want. Don't stop trying. Messing up is part of the experience. It's part of the fight. I'd hope that doesn't discourage anybody. Just keep trying.
0: Listening to James's words feels heavy, but they don't make me feel hopeless. Like James, I struggle sometimes to find my way toward hope, especially right now. Even when I try to fight injustice, I mess up. I know that no matter what I do or say, I will never understand racism the way someone like James does. It's been a hard thing to accept that my empathy can only get me so far. But if I stop there, I've missed the point of everything James is saying— We are in a moment of history where life feels completely insane. Some days it feels downright hopeless. And maybe what we need on those days is just to be angry or sad, to give others permission to feel those things too. I couldn't find that Martin Luther King Jr. quote that James mentioned, but I found another one. It's from a speech I'd never seen before. One MLK delivered in New York City titled Beyond Vietnam A Time to Break Silence. In this time where breaking silence is exactly what we need, I'm going to close with MLK's words today because they're better daily sanity than I could offer you myself. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation, is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all men. This oft-misunderstood and misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of man When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force, which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door, which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another. For love is God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. If you found today's episode meaningful, I hope you'll share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you listen. If you listen on iTunes, rating and reviewing this podcast helps others find it too. As always, you can find more information about today's episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. The Shelter-in-Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter-in-Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter-in-Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.